Hello once again, and welcome back to the Old Code Podcast. This is the 16th episode. I'm your host, The Professor. Today, we're circling back to addressing those cultural issues that I talked about a couple weeks ago in the unholy trinity or cultural trinity ideology. Uh, We, for a little bit, we addressed mammon. Uh, We addressed different, well, I addressed different aspects of how do we push back against the tide of consumerism? How do we push back against the idea that your worth is derived by the progress that you make, whether it's economically or technologically? We pushed back on all of that by pushing forward an idea of striving for excellence and striving for beauty in everything that we're doing. So I wanted to move on from that topic and we will revisit it in combination. And I hope you start to see how these different ideas and these different influences uh, actually interplay with one another. They mingle and I hope that you start to see that emerge out of these episodes. Today I wanted to talk about basically a part one to the addressing of bail. Uh, How do we think about modern bail worship, particularly in agriculture? Yeah, I have to admit it, it's a bit of a task trying to communicate, which I will, I'll say what I'm pushing for in this episode is the premise of regenerative agriculture and it's difficult talking about that in a philosophical context and trying to convince you to care about it i hope that the longer you know unholy cultural trinity if you haven't listened to that go ahead and go listen to it it's a bit longer but i think it's worth it I hope that that gave you a reason, if you have listened to it, I hope that gave you a reason to care about why we are doing what we're doing. I hope that you can say, you know what, there is a moral value, there is a ethical value to how we are doing what we're doing. So I want to start off with giving you one more reason to care, and then we can launch into basically a primer as to what we can do instead. Uh, This is a little less of a individual application episode, because this is one of the cultural critique episodes and cultural influencing episodes, but... If you are someone who owns a farm, if you are someone who owns cattle or livestock, or if you have a garden or anything along those lines, if you support a local farmer at a farmer's market, this episode is going to be a little bit more for you. So I want to open with giving you a odd thing that I have noticed culturally which is, there's a very strange correlation, 
and I was talking to my wife about this the other night, and I'll give her due credit for basically noticing the first half of this paradigm. The more conservative you are... Okay, let me rewind that, sorry. There seems to be a cultural correlation between how we treat our farming and agricultural practices and how we treat our women. And I want to flesh that out. So again, the first half of this was in noticing that heavily conservative, heavily patriarchal communities tend to treat their women like they need to be pregnant 100% of the time. They need to be birthing children 100% of the time. If you are ovulating, then you should probably be pregnant by now. And the very odd correlation to this is in how we treat our soil. So in modern agricultural practices, you ought to be planting and harvesting every single year. We, as soon as the harvest is over, you get rid of all, everything in it, everything in the field. Some farmers burn it, I understand some farmers just rotate through and the, the soil is left bare for the rest of the season until the next year when it is sprayed down with pesticides, insecticides, with, uh, goodness, I'm forgetting the name of it, when it's meant to kill herbicides, there we go, herbicides, uh, we treat it with a synthetic fertilizer in order for it to grow and then we just rush right back into it the next year. And this is odd because biblically, biblically, when we look at how God tells Israel, there's meant to be, on the seventh year, it is meant to be a Sabbath year. There's not meant to be any planting or official harvesting. Uh, you're allowed to pick things, but you're not allowed to corporately harvest. So, I find it fascinating that in conservative circles, we are always focusing, and this goes back to the mammon talk, we're always focusing on productivity, which, as it turns out, the in us seeking to maximize our productivity, our production values have actually been getting lower and lower. Uh, I will see if I can include, there was a study done a couple years ago showing crop yields are actually diminishing uh, at this point in history. And part of the reason for that, as I mentioned previously in the last episode, is because we are depleting the natural fertilizers, the natural nutrients in the soils. Our topsoil is eroding all of the above. Not wanting to rehash the former episode, just wanting to give a little bit more context. This further correlates to how we treat our women in the context of, yes, a woman can be pregnant back to back to back, but if she is not also being taken care of, if she is not herself offered a year of Sabbath, or however long, this is a matter of conviction, this is a matter of finding out when 
a couple is back to being physically, emotionally, spiritually ready to plant and harvest, as it were. So, I don't want to impose any convictions on you. I just want to give you some food for thought. Are we sowing with our families the way we sow in industrialized farming, which is expecting every single year for the crop to be coming as consistently as we want it to be. Now, the following, the mirror correlation, so we've talked about the conservative side. The odd thing is that the more liberal side also mirrors this in the context of the more liberal you are, the more you seem to almost venerate that object. And what I mean by that is the more liberal you are, the more you seem to be gung-ho for the environment to be tantamount. You want the you want nature to be ultimate, essentially. You're almost venerating or deifying nature. And this is one of the reasons why a lot of people end up drifting into liberal mysticism or liberal spirituality, where there is almost an animism. If you don't know, animism is the idea that there is a animating world spirit, essentially, to every inanimate living thing, trees and, and plants and all of the above. This correlates in the cultural context of the more liberal you are, the more you almost seem to venerate or deify the woman as a figure. Uh, it's, and this really actualizes itself through feminism, where liberalism and feminism seem to almost walk hand in hand in this day and age. So I find that to be an odd cultural correlation between the two. Are between these two things, and I and I do actually have a feeling that's one of the reasons why culturally we've usually talked about the Earth being in feminine terms. You know, we talk, we think of Mother Earth, and you can't see it, but I'm doing air quotes. Mother Earth. We think of Gaia in Greek mythology being feminine, all of the above. It's very odd that there's always been a cultural feminine connotation to the earth and in that we match the macrocosm to the microcosm we match the big picture to the little picture or the little picture to the big picture one way or the other so here, that's just another reason and some food for thought as to how are we treating our land and how are we treating our women so something to think about this naturally segues into what I would consider to be a more biblical, and I'm not imposing this on how you treat your wives or women, how you treat yourselves. I'm talking purely about land. My comments about birthing practices and birthing and duration between pregnancies, that is a matter of conviction between, for the couple. That is a matter of discernment. I do not hold that there is a biblical mandate either way. I believe that it is unfortunate and um, I would even say sinful if a couple 
completely avoids any possibility for children in the future because that is excluding an explicit aspect of marriage. I digress. I want to get back to how we treat our soils. So I've discussed that premise enough with the correlation, but I want to talk about how we're treating our soils and how this can be applied to a more biblical and a more longevity speaking framework. So I'm going to be drawing heavily off of two works. First is a book called Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown. And the second, which I cannot recall the name of the author, I'll include it in the show notes. The second is a book called Grass-Fed Beef for a Post-Pandemic World. So these two books really helped open up an image of working with God's creative order as opposed to us superimposing what we believe to be a superior order. So I will lay out the five principles from Dirt to Soil that Mr. Brown uh, propounds, and I'll give you a, a slight reasoning as to why they all work. So he lists out five principles. Yes, five principles. He says limited disturbance, uh, whether that's mechanical, chemical, or physical disturbance to the soil. So therefore, he is opposed to tillage. I have heard both sides of the argument. Uh, as far as tillage goes, I believe in most situations it can be uh, it can be damaging, but in some situations it can be necessary in order to provide an initial loosening up of the soil. So one of the he lists one of the reasons for lack of tillage is tillage causes soil erosion, uh, which causes the degradation of natural resources. Uh, synthetic fertilizers tend to oxidize liquid carbon, which is found in soils. Uh, herbicides tend to kill not only uh, not only the, the bad plants that we want to kill, but also they tend to cause uh, difficulties later on with indi the individual consuming the plant or even the, the cattle who may consume the plant, and I'll get to that in a second. Pesticides oftentimes kill necessary for, uh, pollinators. And fungicides, I'll talk about it in a second, but ultimately fungus serves an incredibly important role as far as how healthy soil actually works. So the re I w I'll clarify, actually, also one of the things that he says is the difference between dirt and soil is dirt is just dirt and soil is something that can grow life. So uh, he lists armor as a as one of these necessary tenets of healthy soil. His The reason why he brings this up is armor he describes as a living barrier that helps to protect the soil and he brings up the fact that if you look at any thriving ecological system, there is always a layer of living material. 
and that's typically what we understand as weeds or grass or something along those lines. Now, these weeds and these grass actually provide both a oxidative, a, a, uh, a protection from oxidation, but also a temperature uh, armor, essentially. It helps to shore up the, the soil structure itself as well. So uh, that's number two. And then number three is diversity. Uh, actually, going back briefly to number two, because I don't think I pointed it out, uh, he didn't just point out that in healthy ecological systems, but in all natural ecolo ecological systems, there is an armor to the soil. And then this segues into the diversity aspect. In natural ecological systems and healthy ecological systems, there's always a ton of biological diversity. You don't ever find a monoculture in nature, essentially. There's always, he says, grasses, forbs, legumes, and shrubs all live and thrive in harmony with each other. Uh, he says, some are high carbon, some are low carbon. Uh, th this helps to cycle nutrients because the natural diversity amongst these plants actually helps each other. So some will help draw nitrogen out from the atmosphere. Some have roots that dig down further and are able to bring nutrients up closer to the surface. Uh, his fourth point is living roots. So the, he says the, these living roots are feeding soil biology by providing its basic food source, which is carbon. So these living roots, uh, it's actually fascinating because the living roots provide situations for what he refers to or what is referred to as mycorrhizal fungi. And these fungi or fungi are able to help make certain nutrients in the soil more bioavailable to the plants than others. The fungi effectively have a symbiotic relationship with the plants. The living roots help to store carbon in the soil. Uh, the disturbance then oxidizes the disturbance such as something like tillage uh, functions to actually oxidize that carbon and then expel it back into the atmosphere. So a little bit of back information. Reason why it's so important to have carbon in your soil is that you could basically compare carbon to fat stores. So when we are exercising or when we're in a caloric deficit, your fat stores are oxidized and they are mobilized to be able to provide energy. During the... Allow me to gather my thoughts. During the year, plants will automatically draw carbon out of the atmosphere and then store it in the soil. Now, this carbon storage is, in fact, for the next generation of plants because the natural life cycle of a plant is it grows, it blooms, it has seeds, it drops those seeds, those seeds fall to the ground, then they sprout, 
and then they have those effectively those fat stores to draw from for the future now this is one of the reasons why these first four tenants are so important because ultimately what we're wanting to do is we are not simply wanting to grow better food we're wanting to take care of the soil that the food grows in part of the reason for that is because if you don't have good soil you're never gonna grow any food now we've started supplementing this in recent years with things like aquaponics and vertical farms but I want to draw an illusion for you with the difference between regenerating land and things like uh, vertical farms and aquaponics or hydroponics the difference between the two is like rehabilitating a, a limb say I have a bad knee or something and I just need a little bit of physical rehabilitation the that is regenerative farming it's saying you know what we've got a bad limb or we've got a bad field let's encourage all of these aspects which we find actually in nature as god has established it let's do all of these things let's do all of these steps in order to rehabilitate the land so that it can be fruitful in the same way we rehabilitate a limb so that it can be useful we going back to the definitions from the classical transcendental we don't want function we don't just want functional soil we want good soil we don't just want soil that can produce goods because it happens to be dirt and that's what plants happen to grow in no we want to create an environment that is actually very conducive for the growth of those plants now this correlates then to vertical farms and aquaponics they're more like a prosthetic where you don't have a limb anymore or you don't have land anymore correlation there you don't have the land or limb you need to supplement with something that is a facsimile thereof you can get very good results from a prosthetic you can get very good results from aquaponics or vertical farms however if you are between amputating a limb and rehabilitating the limb i i would bet dollars to donuts it would be far superior to rehabilitate that limb if at all possible that's i would say that's enough on that little digression now the fifth tenant that he lays out which naturally segues into the second book that i mentioned is integrated animals so he advises the integration of livestock as it helps to create a more healthy functioning ecosystem the integration of or he, uh, sorry clarifying he doesn't just say only farm animals but also pollinators predator insects earthworms and all the other microbiology that drives ecosystem functionality so one of the th reasons why this is so beneficial and we're talking still about the soil is it's odd because there is a natural strengthening effect when 
ruminant animals such as cows or goats uh, or sheep when they graze on greens in a controlled amount a very specific amount this actually cues a stress response to the plant itself which forces the plant to grow stronger and grows back better the next time around so why is that important well first of all going back to all four of those tenants we want stronger roots in the soil we want more carbon cycling by that stronger root we want better proliferation of these fungi so that there can be better nutrient cycling and all of this is helped by both the grazing as well as the natural aeration which takes place during these ruminant feeding frenzies essentially when the cloven hoof pushes into the earth that is a form of aeration it helps to get some oxygen into the soil we don't want too much we don't want it all directly exposed to the soil because that completely oxidizes the soil but we do want some oxygen getting into the soil for things like earthworms and those other uh, forms of life now this segues nicely into that second book like i said uh grass-fed beef for a post-pandemic world i'll include the author's name if i happen to remember it when i'm publishing the episode the benefit of these grazing animals then is a for the farmer when they have them grazing on what is referred to as cover crops because you always want to have something covering the soil you don't just want your cash crop you also want a cover crop to be able to protect the soil from the weather when you have the animals grazing on these this reduces the cost of feed for the for the farmer because they're just grazing on the land uh, this also happens to help the cows themselves because in recent years we have fed our cows a steady diet typically consisting of either corn or soy or some combination of the two we do corn because it's easy to grow effectively it's it's mostly easy to grow and the government subsidizes corn production so that it's dirt cheap for farmers to grow for grain and feeding livestock the difficulty which arises which the grass-fed cows and this this ideology segues perfectly into the difficulty which arises when you feed cows corn and things which don't have a naturally high amount of cellulose which is found in grass and other vegetation cows have what is or ruminant animals have what is referred to as a rumen which is a type of organ similar to a stomach which is explicitly for the breaking down of cellulose when you feed them things that are not rich in cellulose cows tend to get sick they tend to get sickly especially the more you feed them corn which is one of the reasons why when cows are sold to feedlots and they're getting all big and bulked up in order to be fattened and sold they tend to get sick quite often which is one of the reasons why our cows typically have a large amount 
of antibiotics pumped into their system. They also have artificial hormones in order to stimulate growth, all of the above. Now, when you feed them, when you eat this particular type of cow, unfortunately, inflammatory markers in people tend to go up because they are eating an animal that was heavily inflamed and had all of those inflammatory marks before it died. The benefit of being able to feed them grass is that they actually remain healthier longer. And uh, if I'm remembering correctly in the book, he talks about how these cows, which he was feeding purely grass, grass-fed, grass-finished, they were actually bulking up just fine. They, which is absolutely remarkable to hear. He also talks about how quality and taste of the beef that he was getting was off the charts, and everybody was talking, was giving awards for this particular thing. He lays out this. So, if you are a farmer or if you raise livestock, I would highly recommend check out the book uh, "Grass-Fed Beef for Post-Pandemic World." It's got some spotty political stuff in there, but I think it's an absolutely fascinating read. So, uh, I will include the name of the book as well, but this kind of brings us finally to the end of how do we handle this better? Uh, how do we push back against industrialized agriculture and industrialized uh, livestock practices? So, one of the aspects that he brings in to this is that he allows the cows to naturally wean themselves over the course of winter and he has like an entire schedule as to what time to allow the cows to breed and all of that it's fascinating he did a lot of legwork on this uh however this then segues to the end of their life and i will find the book eventually i need to remember what it's called but effectively there is a butcher who was uh, very disillusioned with a butcher and farmer who was very disillusioned with the way modern industrialized farming practices work and he decided to start changing his ways and instead of randomly setting sending out his cattle to a feedlot to be butchered and and murdered or well killed by someone who doesn't know them he raises them himself he feeds them himself and then one day when the cow is ready to be harvested, he takes the cow away to a quiet corner of his field and he does away with the animal himself. So the animal always feels comforted, always feels comfortable, and is never scared. And I find that to be the most ethical and the most compassionate image of animal slaughter that you can possibly have. I don't find ethical qualms with uh, the slaughter of animals for food. I do, however, take ethical qualms with the fact that we do so with seemingly cruelty or without any semblance of compassion. And I think that anything living deserves at least some regard. At least some regard. 
And this effectively humanizes the process and takes it back from the very, very pagan ritualistic aspect of just sending it away out of sight, out of mind, so we don't have to worry about it. And seeing animals just as things for consum consumption, as opposed to living things that we happen to also consume. So, I hope that I didn't lose you in this episode. I hope that I didn't lose your interest. I hope that you find this as fascinating as I do. But ultimately, I hope that this helps you to think a little bit longer and harder about what you are buying at the grocery store, what practices you're supporting. Uh, personally, I have found recently, uh, this is not like a paid advertisement, but Aldi, of all places, has been selling grass-fed ground beef for a very reasonable price. And the moment I found that out, I instantly switched to going over, I think it's maybe a dollar more per pound than the non-grass-fed kind. But just, if you can, try to encourage these regenerative practices in whatever way you can. If you have a garden, you can check out the book either on, I think it's called Everand now, but it used to be called Scribed. Check it out on, on some sort of digital reading platform or go to your local library. Read up on these things because they're absolutely fascinating. And as much as we are not just thinking about how to live a better life, but how do we encourage a better culture? And how do we want our culture to mirror and mimic the way God has created his world to function. I think that's all I have for you today. I've tried to be a little bit more put together for this episode, and I hope it shows. I really enjoyed doing this episode, and I hope you care about it. I really do. Uh, this has been the 16th episode of the Old Code Podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and drop me a little note. I think on Spotify it has the option for feedback. Uh, you can rate the channel. You can do anything that you want. But ultimately, if you happen to know somebody else who is interested in farming practices, encourage them to either listen to this episode or read either of those two books or both of them, whatever you want. Just encourage people to learn more about the way God has designed his world to work. In any case, this has been the Old Code Podcast. I am the professor, and I will catch you next time.